Well, hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we talk about the events of yesterday in detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to be talking about the state of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. We're going to talk about the G7 summit. And then we're going to talk about me realizing just how important it's going to be to keep up in this new industrial revolution. You know, talk about some things that happened in the past with the other industrial revolution to kind of give some context to what we might be seeing in the future. All that and more coming up. get into the rapid fire news so let's talk afghanistan shall we the state department uh they have a spokesperson that said that the u.s embassy in afghanistan may close if a functioning secure airport is no longer available um so basically because the ongoing civil war in afghanistan between the afghan government and the taliban is still going on as the u.s drawing as the U.S. is withdrawing, excuse me, that threatens the routes in and out of the country, namely the vulnerable airstrips that the embassy is concerned about because they don't want to get stranded in Afghanistan. Um, So they're threatening to leave if they can't secure one because the U.S. troops aren't going to be there to secure it anymore. Well, hopefully by September they won't be there to secure it. remains to be seen. Uh, Turkey, though, proposed stationing its troops to guard the airport, Um, but interestingly enough, it was the Taliban who rejected that offer, Um, not necessarily the Afghan government or the United States. And my my little um, headcanon reasoning behind that would probably be because the Taliban doesn't want to have to compete over who owns what portion of their country because the Turks might pull a Russia and keep the troops there indefinitely. I'm pretty sure the Taliban would appreciate full and total control over Afghanistan because they probably feel just as much as I do that they're winning and they probably don't want more foreign troops on their soil. They'll probably... They'll probably opt to control the airport themselves whenever they get around to winning. Uh, that'll probably take that'll probably take a couple more years. Um, but again, my money's on Afghanistan uh, losing the Afghan government. I'm, my money's on them losing and the Taliban winning. And this uh, proves me ever closer to being right. We'll see um, if the Afghan government can do some major turnaround. Uh, unlikely. It's looking like we're going to have a Taliban-controlled Afghanistan. Uh, and we'll see how countries respond to that. Uh, yeah, we'll see how countries respond to that. But Turkey's been making some uh, moves. Turkey's been making some moves as of late. Uh, from, what, pioneering mercenary... Uh, pioneering the usage of mercenaries in modern warfare. Uh, these proxy warfares, but... 
modern warfare nonetheless. I guess they're rebuilding their Janissaries. And the Russians are rebuilding the Cossacks with the little green men in Ukraine. Little, little, little cracks in this fragile peace forming on the peripheries. And we'll see if they explode into something far worse or something weirder. Perhaps something more akin to centuries past. Uh, wars of imperial expansion, uh, rise and fall of empires. Uh, that's what I believe we're on track for. And what I'm trying to figure out is who's going to be the uh, the major players. Who's going to be the stars of that show? Who are we going to be looking out for? Uh, Turkey's definitely on the list. Um, and they keep poking and prodding. They, they're feeling out their region. They realize that they can't go north. The Russians have the north on lockdown. Um, the Ukraine is really the only place they can go. But that I'm pretty sure they estimate that the Russians can take that down uh, if they poke and prod too much in Ukraine. And then Ukraine's gone. Because ultimately they don't want their mercenaries to get killed in the process. They they want to be on the winning side, which is which was to their benefit in the Azerbaijan-Armenian War, where they were winning, and then the Russians stepped in. So they probably don't want a repeat of that with the Ukraine War, where the Ukrainians are fighting rebels. Uh, they start... I was going to say they start winning, but let's be honest, the Ukrainian military would probably start losing to the rebels by themselves. And... I don't think the mercenaries... I don't think Turkey wants to bet their mercenaries on a losing battle. So they're probably keeping influence in the Ukraine to the minimum. They're, they're happy to sell drones to Ukraine, mind you. They're happy to do that. Um, but it seems like Turkey has realized the same thing that I realized a while back. In that the only real option they have, at least until some sort of disintegration of... NATO slash the EU uh, is to go south. South is their only option into the heart of the Middle East. And we're really starting to see that now with them poking and prodding. They're, again, they're occupying parts of northern Syria still, and they're poking and prodding to see where they can go. They're poking in Lebanon. They're backing the Palestinians in the Israel-Palestine conflict. Uh, a conflict which is uh, resolved. It, it's not resolved. It's just been put on hiatus for the umpteenth time. It'll probably boil over into more fighting at some point in the future. Um, potentially with Turkish... Potentially with Turkish weapons in the hands of the Palestinians via the Gaza Strip. Or maybe smuggled in through tunnelways. We don't know, but what we do know is Turkey is making moves, and even in Afghanistan, they're trying. They're not always succeeding, but they're trying, and eventually they're they're going to poke and prod and find an opening, and they're going to go through, and really that's the aim, I'd, I'd imagine, seeing where they can get in, and getting in where they can get in, so they're trying in Afghanistan, I'd imagine that even with a failure in Afghanistan, they'll probably try to reach out to the Taliban uh, to establish formal relations. They're reaching out to Syria, Assad, the Syrian government, as a part of the 
normalization efforts going on between many Middle Eastern nations with Syria. But Turkey's definitely one to look out for. I don't think the whole Eastern Mediterranean thing is resolved just yet. The Turks are still building up their navy, and I'd imagine that as it gets larger and stronger, and is complemented by land-based air assets, namely drones, I'd imagine the Turks are going to start getting real aggressive in the Eastern Mediterranean again, and at that point, who will be able to stop them? Because at that point, they'll probably be able to move ships through, uh, what is it, Canal Istanbul? Uh, the canal that they're building right next to the uh, the Bosphorus Strait, where they're going to be able to basically take advantage of it all by themselves, because it's not international waters. It's not subject to treaty like the Bosphorus is, and they're probably intent on keeping it that way, which means that they'll be able to move ships through uh, and that canal freely without having to consult anybody, and no one else will. Will that backfire on them at some point in the future? Maybe. But for now, they're the strongest player on the block in their region. Uh, no one can really challenge them except for the Russians, but the Russians are preoccupied uh, in Ukraine and in the Caucasus. And probably at some point in the future, they'll be preoccupied in Central Asia again. But that's in the future. Turkey's making moves. And... They've realized the only direction they can go is south. And so they are. Uh, but I'm, I'll just take the W and say that I was right on this one. But uh, yeah, that's it for Afghanistan and my little my little um, tangent on the something I've noticed regarding Turkey's actions. But now we're gonna we're gonna move on. Uh, not quite leaving the Middle East yet. We're gonna hop on over to the fringes where we have Eritrea, who's been accused of the UN by of starving Tigray rebels in Ethiopia, um, starving them of food uh, stuffs that would previously come in. And these Tigray rebels are really getting just messed up. I mean, it's not like the Ethiopian military's giving them an easy time, but then they have an ideological foe in Eritrea, who's has the troops on the border just waiting for them to do anything. Uh, they're in a really tough spot, but they're in the mountains, so I expect this rebellion to go on uh, almost indefinitely. At some point, I imagine, uh, it'll have a resolution uh, that can properly be called a resolution, as opposed to as opposed to um, the Israel-Palestine conflict. But, um, yeah, so that's Eritrea, and then we move on over to a completely different region of the world. We have Cambodia using rats that they've imported from Tanzania as a mine-sweeping force. They've taken these rats, they've trained them to sniff out mines, they put little little pieces of equipment on their heads, probably to, probably to control their movements, um, and let them sniff out things and see how they respond. They're probably looking at brainwaves. And, yeah, they have new mine-sweeping equipment, that's probably going to spread worldwide, um, depending on, well, maybe, you know, maybe. People like their dogs, people like their dogs, and I'm pretty sure they'd rather lose a rat looking for a mine than to lose a dog. So there's that. Uh, we'll go south from Cambodia to Australia, 
who's seeking to modernize their submarine fleet. Uh, this coming in response to massive uh, fear that's, whether you can say it's organic or being drummed up by their news, uh, regarding China and the Chinese, particularly the Chinese Navy. Because, you know, Australia is an island, so a massive Chinese Navy is going to catch their attention. I know, specifically Sky News has just been all on the uh, the up and up with war with China uh, as a possibility for Australia and a possibility they should be prepared for. And I guess some of that is seeping into their dis- their government's decision making. Uh, well, actually, this was this effort to modernize the submarines took place a while ago, and now it's popping up again. But I'd imagine that we're going to see more of this, uh, not just for submarines, but likely for anti-submarine equipment, and perhaps even a larger air force, and maybe even a larger fleet. Uh, we'll, we'll see what Australia does, but very interesting that this story pops up now amidst all the fear of a war between China and Australia. Australia also being subject to a trade war with them in China. Uh, that's probably hurting a lot, but Australia has dug its feet in, and they've they've teamed up with India and Japan. The Cold War intensifies. But uh, coming back to the U.S., we are set to send military equipment to the Ukraine to count, uh, not to count. Well, yeah, to counter uh, drones uh, and electric electronic warfare. Uh, yeah, because that's kind of like a main state of the Russian presence there, drones and electronic warfare. So we're sending equipment to counter that. Uh, no troops, um, but uh, hey, at least the Ukrainians have those drones from Turkey too. Huh? Uh, I'm sure they're... Every, every, every little bit's appreciated at this point. They don't have an Air Force, and I'm sure their army would appreciate everything they can get. Uh, probably don't like being in the trenches. Uh, probably have trench foot, and probably have to deal with lots of rats, too. Trenches aren't fun, but, uh, yeah. What, what can you really do here? I mean, if they try to go on the offensive, they're going to lose. But that's not even in the, in the question. So, really hunkering down and heavily arming themselves is the best they're going to be able to do in this situation and hope that one day the rebel provinces decide to come back to Ukraine. Maybe it'll happen. Who knows? My money's not on it, but hey, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, while we're in Europe, the EU has asked Poland to stop reviewing the, um, well, stop reviewing Really, what they're saying is stop scrutinizing EU law for inconsistencies with Polish law. That's basically what they're saying. Because Poland has decided that Polish law is above EU law in Poland. And they're having their judiciary sort of comb through it all right now, and it's causing lots of legitimacy problems for the EU. Um, so you can you can sort of see now, as just like another instance where the EU is effectively humbled by its own internal member state and why I don't consider the EU to be a great power but member states of the EU get considered great powers Poland isn't a great power but that 
only makes my case stronger in that this not great power, Poland, is bullying the EU. So, from within, mind you. So, yes, the EU is on rocky ground. Very rocky ground. I don't, I've stressed multiple times in these past few months that I believe they're in quite the unwinnable situation. A situation almost as unwinnable as Ukraine, but I think Ukraine takes the cake. Meanwhile, we have the Kyrgyzstani president, Sadir Yaparov. Uh, there we go, Sadir Yaparov, who has visited Turkey for a foreign relations trip. See, I, when I tell you about Turkey, you keep your eyes on them. They're, they're up to something. Well, actually, the president visited them, which is probably going to incite a visit in return because Turkey is, again, poking and prodding to see where they fit in so they can get in where they fit in. So little things like these matter. Uh, Japan is seeking to strengthen their bilateral ties with Australia in the face of a growing China. And we just talked about uh, Australia trying to bolster its submarine fleet and how that's sort of co coinciding with this massive anti-China uh, fear that's going on in the country. And I said it. They're, they've drawn their line in the sand. They are on the side of anti-China, which has put them in direct alignment with Japan and India, and those two, I'll never forget, have a 10-year military pact with one another. It's, it's nine and a half years right around now, but nine and a half years is nine and a half years. Will Australia sign a defense pact with them? Maybe not, but, you know, I don't imagine they're going to be unhelpful in this struggle that they have decided they're going to be in. All right? They've decided that this is the where they're going to be. So, anything that happens, Australia is de facto on the side of Japan and India. So, we can, we, we don't even need to really think about that one, at least until some sort of major political shift happens in the country. They're on the side of Japan and India. And if they build a navy, or perhaps an air force, they might have a triad where India has the army, Japan has the navy... And Australia has the Air Force. We might be looking at something like that. And Japan knows how to build carriers, so you could even see potential integration of an Australian air wing with Japanese carriers. We don't know yet, but things are heating up in the east. Things are heating up in the east. Uh, and I guess while we're talking about anti-China, we can talk about China-China. Uh, because Chinese miners have been captured... And, well, it, it said kidnapped, but I feel odd saying kidnapped about grown men. So, Chinese miners have been captured in the country of Niger. And we'll see how the Chinese government responds to that. They'll probably just send more miners. Uh, but, interesting, interesting story. Uh, we talk about anti-China. I'm not quite sure that Niger is anti-China, but... Uh, the miners have been kidnapped and they're probably going to demand a ransom a ransom that the Chinese may or may not be willing to pay and we'll see if that has any ramifications uh, but before we move on to the meat of this episode uh, <laughs> uh, what is up 
with all this tomfoolery about eating cicadas. Like, seriously, it won't go away. I was gathering up the news for today's podcast episode, right? Minding my own business, right? And suddenly, I scroll past this article asking me if I was craving chocolate-covered cicadas and telling me where to find them. And my immediate response was a resounding, what? Like, I, I obviously didn't read the article as I was damn near offended at the idea of eating cicadas. Like, I am, I'm not eating cell from Dragon Ball Z. That's, that's what we're not doing. And no, that's, that is all the way out of the question. I don't know who thought this was a good idea. I don't know who propagated this as though it were. I don't know who I don't know who approved of this article, but I would appreciate it if they would all cease and desist. That being said, <laughs> that concludes the rapid fire news section and we'll get into the meat in just a moment. All right, we're back and now we're going to talk about the G7 Summit as we open up the meat of the episode. Uh, well, we'll just get right into it. So, the G7 Summit ran from Friday to Sunday. And I sort of held, withheld my um, opinions and my thing on, well, this entire section on, because I wanted the thing to be finished before I did anything with it. So, just a little bit of my dedication to the podcast, you know. You're welcome, okay? <laughs> But uh, anyway, the countries in attendance were the UK, France, Germany, Italy, Canada, Japan, and the big boy, America. Now, there was much hype around the change in attitude between the USA and, uh, you you know, those other Western countries. uh, Because of what went down with the last administration. Uh, Trump shut the door. And we went our own way, much to my delight. Uh, And now Biden is opening the door again to shackle us back to the corpse of the alliance system, much to my dismay. And one of these days, I'll elaborate on the distinction between the U.S. and the U.S. alliance system, as well as the strategic position and interests of both. Because they don't really line up, is what I've been observing. And they... Uh, I'd say America doesn't necessarily need the alliance system, which is also an ob- observation that I have made, quite the unpopular opinion, but um, but it's mine to have. And one of these days I'll elaborate on why I have it. Uh, just another, just another one of my little isolationist rants uh, coming in the future, but yeah, I think you'll enjoy it. <laughs> Excuse me. But uh, yeah. Emmanuel Macron, in particular, was especially pleased by this change in attitude. Uh, He was quoted saying, uh, It is, well, I'll I'll actually say the quote, he didn't say it is. It's it's great to have a U.S. president who's part of the club and very willing to cooperate. And that's what he said. He probably meant it because uh, I don't think he got along too well with Trump, namely due to the lack of any real meetings between Trump and many of these other leaders, uh, these G7 slash NATO, things like that, Trump didn't really meet with them. He was pretty heavy, heavily focused on the domestic side, 
And when he did step out into foreign policy, he was um, more concerned with China and the Middle East, namely getting us out of the Middle East with a series of peace deals. And he even got that deal with the Taliban where we were going to be out by May 1st. Uh, we're not out by May 1st anymore, but, you know, he's not in office, so I can't hold that against him. But uh, hopefully we're out by September, so that we're still out by there. But um, that was where he went with his foreign policy and sort of really neglected Europe uh, wholesale. So now we have Biden, who's all in on Europe, um, sort of kind of continuing the withdrawal from the Middle East and is going aggressive on China. No, Trump was aggressive on China, too, but that was more so economic aggressive rather than diplomatic political aggressive because um, he wanted to bring back the American industrial base. Um, and he was really good at not starting wars. So I felt like I was in good hands. But uh, we'll, we'll have to see with this Biden guy. <laughs> Definitely not a biased assessment. Not biased at all. But at least you know I'm biased, so it makes it better. Just a little bit. But anyway, we have Emmanuel Macron is very happy. Uh, he got slapped. He got slapped the other day. I don't know why I just now uh, remembered this. He was he was slapped. Anyway, there was a very heavy emphasis during the meetings on dealing with the challenges posed to the alliance system by China and Russia. But again, nothing really sort of tangible was agreed upon other than the agreement that the Chinese and Russians were challenging the system. So, at, le at least they're in agreement that there, that there are challengers and challenges to be had, but um, no, nothing really concrete. Maybe something concrete will happen in the future. I'm sure this has opened up dialogue for more talks to happen, but eh, I don't know. I don't know. We'll have to wait and see on this one. And uh, perhaps we'll get some sort of massive grand strategy on how to deal with China and Russia at the same time. I have no clue how you're going to do that one. I have, I have no clue how you're going to do that one. Yeah. I, I, no, no, I seriously really have no idea how you're going to pull that one off when you have these this massive block just from the size of China and Russia together. It's huge. And if Russia can lean on China economically, and China has Russia guarding its flanks and its rear, then the, the Russians can focus squarely on Europe, and China can build a navy, which threatens the alliance system even more than the fact that they're together by itself threatens the alliance system. So... Any grand strategy is going to lean heavily on the United States, and simply put, the U.S. cannot deal with Russia and China at the same time. Uh, and Europe is in no position to deal with either, uh, especially under the EU. So, ooh, I, I, man, I don't know. I really don't know what they're going to do. I hope they do it smart. That's my hope. I hope they do it smart, and I hope they do it you know, logically 
and strategically so that we don't get into a hot war with the countries we spent so long trying not to get into hot wars with. Well, that, they called it a cold war for a reason. Hopefully we can keep it cold. Maybe it doesn't even need to be a war, but we'll have to see. Um, and I guess, speaking on cold war, uh, one of the major takeaways from this meeting was sort of an extension of Biden's idea that an ideological struggle is going on around the world between democracy and autocracy. Uh, that he laid that out in his State of the Union address, uh, what was it, a couple months back? Um, and so he's sort of playing that forward on the international stage um, where he talks about the need for G7 and America's allies to sort of really start to... How do I put this? Hmm. I guess I'll put it the way they put it, which is to brand democracy as an alternative, a viable alternative to autocracy. Now, why any autocrat would voluntarily give more power away from himself, I'm not entirely sure. Um, but I guess it's uh, it would serve better as a deterrence for existing democracies to head towards autocracy more than some sort of appeal to autocracies to democratize. Now, there's the chance that they do. I'm just saying that if I were an autocrat, um, I wouldn't. And I have extensive, extensive experience in Civ Five to where I can say definitively that I would not as an autocrat. So, perhaps, if, if governing a country is anything remotely close to the Civ Five experience, or even the Civ 6 experience, you don't give power to the people. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So that's the new ideological struggle. Democracy and autocracy, rather than, say, capitalism and liberty versus communism and tyranny. And, well, I guess Russia and China technically fit the bill. Um, when you look at their strongmen, Vladimir Putin and Xi, and you look only at their strongmen, but realistically, they're both uh, democratic. Not the most democratic, mind you. Russia being more democratic than, say, China. Um, China's much more rough around the edges with that whole democracy thing. It's more of a, you get appointed... It's closer... Is it an... No, it's not an autocracy as much as it would be, uh, what, an oligarchy? Oligarchy? No, no. What's the best term for them? I'm not, yeah, what is the best term for the Chinese system? Because it's a, it's a one-party system where you work within the party and the party promotes you uh, because you do good or because you convince them that the other guy did bad. So there is a bit of a meritocracy in there. So I wouldn't, I don't think it'd be fair to call it an oligarchy, and there's, the power is too, you know, decentralized due to the massive population of China to be considered an autocracy. So what would be the appropriate term? I guess technocracy, kind of? Technocracy? Meritocracy? Uh, a Chinatocracy? <laughs> uh, a partyocracy, there we go. A CCpocracy. That's a little bit, kind of an acronym, but I think it works, a, a CCpocracy, 
that's what China is right now. You do well within the party and you get promoted. That leads to merit and it leads to uh, unwanted things, but that's the most accurate thing I can describe the Chinese political system right now because it's not an autocracy, but it's not democratic at the same time. I mean, it works for the Chinese, but hey, I'm trying to get accuracy here. Russia is a straight-up federation. They're, they're the easy ones. They're the easy ones. Ironically, it's the Russians who are the easy ones in this situation. They're not necessarily an autocracy either, although Putin is the strongman, and a whole lot of people trust him, uh, namely the people in power. So, you could say he's an autocrat, and him writing his name, and him getting his name written into the Constitution, as well as Xi Jinping, although for a renewed terms rather than an unlimited term limit uh, speaks volumes as to who's closer to being an autocracy but um regardless um my regardless of my rant on the specifics of whether or not they actually are autocracies um the the ideological struggle is there between more democratic nations and more strongman led nations so that's the emphasis that I'll just I'll just leave it there before I go on another tangent about something super specific uh but I guess while we're talking about these things in this summit we should bring up that there was a heavy anti china anti russia um sentiment there if you can believe it um i know that the chinese embassy in london had some words to say specifically they said that quote the days when global decisions were dictated by a small group of countries are long gone end quote and these comments were likely due to them being agitated by the meeting's discussion of the uyghur situation in northwestern china and the Hong Kong situation in southern China. I'm willing to bet that Taiwan was also talked about while the countries were meeting together and the subject of China was discussed and I thought I should add that. Probably talked about Ukraine and maybe the Caucasus. The pivot to China has been pretty strong here almost to the exclusion of actual Russian actions. The the focus on Russia seems to me by uh, more on things that the Russians haven't actually done rather than the things that they have done, which is really odd, especially when you see the strength of the anti-Russian sentiment, at least within the news and government. The regular people on the ground seem to be uh, a different case, although there is fear, but not quite to the degree that government is uh, acting in. So, that's sort of an odd observation I've made regarding the anti-Russia sentiments. Uh, the anti-China sentiments are centered around things that the Chinese actually are doing, which is um, genocide in uh, Xinjiang. Genocide in Xinjiang. Uh, cultural and physical. They've shrapnel on Hong Kong freedom by reasserting control mainland control over the city uh and taiwan is probably next on that list 
But for now, the Taiwanese are good. For now. Now, another major development from the summit was the alliance's perhaps uh, long overdue. If you're super pro alliance, super pro Western alliance, this is kind of a long overdue answer to the Belt and Road that you've probably been waiting for something on, uh, and that is the Build Back Better for the World uh, initiative, and this is a massive infrastructure aid program that, in an agreement, uh, is meant to help smaller, poorer countries uh, develop infrastructure. I wonder where they're going to do that, though. Because China has Asia on lockdown. Figuratively and literally. <laughs> the Chinese have Asia on lockdown. Um, and particularly parts of Central Asia. And they got Iran to sign on. Really all that's left is for them to get Turkey to sign on. And the Belt and Road can get to Europe through a southern route rather than going through Russia. So, that and that would complete the Silk Road, uh, and then it would really just be a matter of expanding it within countries that are a part of the road. So, the Belt and Road has a lot of momentum behind it, and it's already pretty far-reaching as it is. So, what this um, Build Back Better for the World is meant to achieve, um, well, what it's meant to achieve, we already know. But what it realistically is going to be able to achieve is another thing, because countries that have committed to the Belt and Road probably don't have the spare cash to opt in to build back better for the world, especially if the people involved in the BBB for the world are going to be con conscious, highly conscious of whether you are democratic or aut autocratic. Or whether they consider you to be democratic or autocratic, and <clears throat> whether or not they withhold some of that infrastructure money on the basis of your nation's ideology. In which case, if you're not democratic, well, you're just going to go to the Chinese side and not even bother. And if you're on the Chinese side, you're going to stay on the Chinese side and not even bother, if that's the case. If we start doing purity tests for who can and can't get in involved in this BBB for the world infrastructure program based on your national ideology. So we'll have to look for that. We'll have, we'll have to pay attention to whether or not that becomes a prerequisite. If it does, we already know that uh, it's going to not be popular with a lot of countries. But as far as the countries it will be popular with, um, that really just leaves this... Uh, infrastructure program with Africa and s yeah no it, it's just Africa maybe South America um, and what Latin America I mean they could do Europe but I I think the whole for the world thing is means that it's not going to be America and Europe it's going to be places outside they're probably going to try to compete with China directly in Asia I don't think they're going to succeed with that but again, realistically speaking, that really only leaves them with Africa and South America. Now, this would be great for Africa and South America, um, but it seems it seems counter to what 
they wanted out of this the re what they're realistically going to be able to achieve seems counter to what they've wanted out of this which was something to really compete with the belt and road again it'll be great for the countries who are able to get in and get the infrastructure but as far as the grand strategy behind it all it doesn't seem to really threaten the belt and road um its expansion or where it's already is because um, I I see the Belt and Road going straight to the Middle East and parts of East Africa, um, as well as through Turkey eventually, whenever they get it linked up uh, and they we bob and weave the rails and the roads through Iran, because Iran is a pretty mountainous country, whenever they finish off with that, they'll probably get to Turkey. But where this Build Back Better for the World is going to start... Um, Maybe Brazil, maybe Argentina, maybe Mexico, um, maybe Morocco, and Nigeria. There are options. I'm just saying that it's not really going to threaten the Belt and Road. Maybe that's not the actual purpose that I've uh, and I'm I'm mistaken. Um, but uh, see, yeah, that's that's the way I see it. Maybe perhaps I'm wrong. Um, and perhaps it's just going to be a good thing altogether that we have this alternative for countries to choose with. And again, we're going to have to look for any ideological prerequisites for access to the funds. And we'll have to wait and see on this. Uh, but another agreement that was come to in this was an agreement to impose a 15% minimum corporate tax throughout the seven countries um, that are a part of the G7. And this came with the stated aim to prevent corporations from moving their headquarters and operations to tax havens. Um, now, at this point, they would probably just move out of G7 countries and go to some Southeast Asian country and gain access to the massive free trade zone that is RCEP. The Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. I finally remembered the name. And there, they'd have low taxes, lots of cheap labor, and massive markets. You're talking China, Indonesia, Japan, South Korea, Thailand, Vietnam. Maybe India at some point in the future, but India decided to go its own way with regards to our RCEP. But massive markets within a free trade bloc. So, if they get effectively outlawed through taxation in the G7 countries, I see them hopping ship almost overnight. Uh, either that or waiting for uh, smaller corporations. Sorry about that, I have a plane flying over my house. But either that, they move to Southeast Asia, or they sit and wait for smaller corporations to be priced out of the market, and then they eat up the market share and make up for the loss. Uh, and then they find ways around the taxes and pay less. <laughs> so, we'll have, to, we'll have to see where that goes. I don't see it being uh, necessarily good for the economy. Everybody hates taxes. I mean, people harp on the rich for not wanting to pay taxes, but let's be honest with ourselves. We don't want to pay taxes either. I propose, I am a, well, I don't propose, I am a strong advocate of the 0% income tax. And you know what? I am proposing it. I am proposing it. We should have 
Texas's state income tax as the federal income tax, and we'll, we'll go from there, all right? Zero is great. Zero is great. Low taxes are, low taxes are good. No taxes are better. That's my position, okay? You can, <laughs> you can try to tell me uh, otherwise, but really what you'll be doing is explaining to me how wrong you are. <laughs> Anyone who's paid taxes will immediately hop to my side. Well, you should. Alright, that's the only should I'll say here, alright? If you're smart, you're with me. If you're not smart, you're, you're coughing up money. But hey... People have a right to be wrong. People have a right to be wrong. But anyway, that's... <laughs> that's what I see uh, with this 15% minimum corporate tax. Um, on, on a, Back to a, a serious note. If they implement this, they're, the big corporations are either going to sit there and watch the smaller boys get priced out the market. Or they're just going to move to where a non-G7 country... And any country who doesn't choose to follow in the footsteps of the G7, uh, those are included, and they'll just do business there. And there's nothing the G7 can do about that. They will have handed over the economic influence to people uh, who aren't in the G7, diminishing the influence of the G7 in the process, I should add. Um, yeah, there's that. Now, given that this was just one of three major events this week uh, for America's foreign policy team, I expect next week's episode to be pretty America-centric, and I'll stress once more before the Biden-Putin summit that I hope it's America-centric in the good way and not the U.S.-China Anchorage summit way. You know, People forgot about that real quick, but I didn't, and I'll never forgive. My leadership, that is. I can't blame the Chinese for walking all over them. I'll never forgive my leadership for this. Do better. Please, I need you to do better. But anyway, uh, on another note... Uh, on another note, I saw this DW documentary. They, they do nice little documentaries every now and then. Um, they did one on the... Kyrgyzstan, um, Tajikistan border conflict a while back. That was how I got a lot of the information on it. Um, but I saw a DW documentary, and this one was on the next era of warfare. Specifically, it was called uh, The Future of Modern Warfare, How Technology is Transforming Conflict, a DW analysis. And it was pretty nice. It was pretty interesting. Uh, they went over how cyberspace and the security threats that the new field of battle presents there. They went over loitering munitions, uh, such as kamikaze drones, and how drone swarms, in their current iteration, their current iteration, and they're only bound to improve as time goes on, their current iteration can overwhelm contemporary air defense systems. And it was, yeah, I can really only give them props. It was a really interesting documentary. Uh, and it really got me thinking, um, because when they brought up how warfare is evolving faster than most governments can comprehend and even respond to, I looked at that, and I came to the realization for myself that this is sort of us watching the revolution warfare 
that is accompanying the new industrial revolution that we are in. And we're only in the early phases of that revolution. So warfare is likely to look radically different by the mid-century, like 2040, 2050. Uh, going to look radically different then than it does today because the technology is going to be radically different. And the things that that technology is going to be able going to enable is going to be radically different. And by the time we get to the end of the century, we won't even recognize the weapons that they will be using. Uh, well, the weapons that they'll be winning wars with, mind you. We'll, we'll probably recognize the gun, and that'll be about it. So, yeah, it really got me thinking about how this is the accompanying revolution in warfare. To the industrial revolution it i'll be honest it made me start to grasp the importance of being able to keep up with the new industrial revolution and the new technologies and manufacturing techniques that come with it not just for the sake of keeping up economically but because of the rapid advance in economy and industry will themselves trigger rapid changes on the battlefield and rapid changes in the realities of the battlefield and I know I talk I've talked a lot about the and one of the one of the key examples that came to mind to sort of sort of help visualize what I mean is uh, thinking back to the US Civil War when the two ironclads came to blows the USS Monitor and the USS and the CSS uh, Virginia, I believe, when they came to blows, that was sort of this moment that really encapsulated, for the time back then, what I hope to sort of convey to you now, where we are. And that is that the again the rapid advance in economy and industry will trigger rapid changes in the battlefield. Because the mass production of steel and economic development, combined with the steam engine, another economic development, uh, and that came together to create an ironclad. And you couldn't just build an ironclad just because you wanted one. Alright? You couldn't just do that. Your economy had to have developed enough to where you could mass produce steel, number one. Number two, you had to be able to make steam engines. That was number two. Number three, you had to make large seaworthy vessels. Number three. Uh, and then number four, you had to have the engineers to put all of those technologies together in order for you to build just one ironclad. Just one. And mind you that this is a marvel of engineering and that prior to this they had massive ships made of wood and those were considered first rates and those first rates were rendered obsolete by this new craft that wasn't anywhere near as large but by the standard of the time you couldn't do anything about it you couldn't do anything about it and that's sort of my emphasis on the ironclad and the showdown between the ironclads of the Union and the Confederacy, if, in case and you're, you're wondering why I choose this example specifically, and it's because 
in its day, the ironclad was unsinkable. Even if you had ironclads of your own at that specific moment in time, uh, the eighteen, the early eighteen sixties. Even if you had your own ironclads, that would not give you an offensive advantage against another ironclad. So having an ironclad didn't mean you could beat an ironclad. So on the, on the surface, it would seem to be a nullified investment. But think for a second, what would happen if you were an admiral and you didn't have an ironclad what would happen to your fleet what would happen to your country's trade what would happen to you on the boat you were on that wooden rickety ass vessel what would happen to you if you didn't have this ironclad and you remember you can't sink the other one but if you didn't your country didn't put in the investment to build one of their own what happens to you you can't sink that it's an unsinkable vessel but it can sink you and your wooden ships, all of them, and if left alone, it could sink your whole fleet, unless there were problems on board the ironclad that caused them to not be able to do so. Falling behind economically in steel production and steam engines, and remember the steam engine had to be powerful enough to move a ship that was made of steel, and I guess you also had to have a sufficient coal industry economic development there too, to where you could power the damn steam engine. If you didn't have those, boom, your military's obsolete now, and you, there's nothing you could do. If you didn't develop economically, you fell behind rapidly, within just decades. Within just decades, you fell that far behind. You could have been top of the line in 1850. You don't have an ironclad in 1860, your navy's obsolete. And it was that fast and I think we're seeing something similar happen now um, because we can apply that same concept to drone and automaton warfare and overlay that with cyber warfare and you have quite the wild ride we're in for where changes in offensive cybersecurity weapons and responsive cybersecurity weapons like malware or spyware or things like that new new ones that can detect when you're being hacked and then they immediately counteract by hacking the enemy and giving them a virus and giving them spyware so they think that they're safe but you're really spying on their systems now you could have something like that you could you could have drones that can loiter in the skies for days. That's that's the new talk now. Uh, loitering munitions that stay up there for a while now. I know Russia has a submarine that's nuclear powered. It can stay underwater. It's dr it's a drone submarine and it does very little communication uh, with the mainland. So it's really hard to it's really hard to detect. And it can just loiter around to, for a while under the water. It's nuclear powered and can't really do anything about it unless you can somehow find it but it can go really really deep so even if you could find it there's nothing much you can do about it and that's sort of another example modern day you can build your own little loitering submarine munition you can't do anything about the other ones that other people have but if you don't have it your fleet's obsolete and it's that simple
if you don't have the most modern equipment, your military, depending on where it is, whether it's at sea, whether it's on land or in the air, or even, say, cybersecurity, if you don't have 6G, or if you don't have eventually 7G, and you don't have the processing speeds to keep up with the enemy, and you can't collect and process the data that the enemy is collecting and processing in real time, uh, if you can't get an accurate vi three-dimensional vision of the battlefield, but your enemy can, and they can make strategy and plan around that in real time, where they can see everything you're doing, and you can, you can only see what they're doing at a lag of just a couple seconds, well, you lose. And it's crazy to think about that. It's crazy to think that this thing that you just feel is annoying when you're playing a game could one day determine the fate of the battle. Lag. Who has the best internet connection? Who has the best storage? Who has, who has the best internet access in, say, a storm when the, the lines go down? Can you still access? Can you still access your systems? Or are you a decade behind and you're hampered by the weather, but your enemy isn't? Or maybe you're hampered more than your enemy, even though you're in the same conditions. And you have just a half a second more lag than him. He can respond faster than you. And especially if we're talking automated softwares, where a lot of these decisions are getting taken out of the hands of people, and put into hands of machines who by themselves when given a code can take those decisions and make them in split seconds like that that lag suddenly means a whole lot more because you don't have the human hand say uh where you have the hesitation you have the machine and the second they get the green light go and that half second can be the difference between you having your drone up in the sky taking down the enemy or the enemy drone takes out your shit. And it's really crazy to think that we could be on the verge of something like that. But we are. Like, we are. It's wild. I swear, it's really wild to think about. But I guess that's where we are. On, on track to something where every city has a bunch of neon lights and hovercraft. Maybe that's what lies for us on the other side of the century. But we get to watch uh, the process. And I think, again, that we are in for quite the wild ride. But that is all I have for you today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast and my geopolitical podcast. And, well, well, I say it every day, well, every Monday, that the world is changing. But I also say that we're going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Haishan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So, till we meet again next Monday, servus.